This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Harry Helling, and I'm the Executive Director of the Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. Welcome to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science webinar series. This year, we are organizing these webinars as themed mini-series dedicated to the world-class research at Scripps. Tonight, we present the second in a three-part series focused on research for resilience on a changing planet. This series highlights Scripps oceanography programs that inform science-based decision-making, resource management, and climate change adaptations as a key part of their mission. It is my great pleasure to introduce our second speaker in this series, Dr. Clarissa Anderson. Clarissa is the Executive Director of the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System, called SCUS. SCUS is an integrated coastal ocean observing system within the Southern California Bight region that provides diverse stakeholders with scientific data and information necessary to address critically important coastal issues. Clarissa is a biological oceanographer with expertise in ecological forecasting and remote sensing. After receiving undergraduate degrees in biology and art history at UC Berkeley and at a marine science PhD at UC Santa Barbara, Clarissa completed research as a postdoctoral scholar at NOAA, University of South Carolina, and UC Santa Cruz before transitioning into a professional research position at UC Santa Cruz. Her research during those years was focused on the prediction of harmful algal blooms in estuarine and coastal ecosystems and the establishment of the California Harmful Algae Risk Mapping System. As the Executive Director of the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System, Clarissa continues her research on phytoplankton ecology and harmful algal blooms in coastal California, as well as managing the SCUS network of real-time ocean observing and modeling systems. Tonight, Clarissa will update us on SCUS initiatives and show how SCUS observations and modeling are helping stakeholders understand and adapt to our changing coastal ocean in Southern California. Please join me in welcoming Clarissa for her talk entitled The Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System. Hi, I'm Clarissa Anderson. Really great to be here today to tell you all about the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System. And as you heard in the introduction, this is a group that does a lot of stuff related to coastal modeling, coastal prediction, and coastal observing in order to really um, meet the needs of our stakeholders and all of the end users throughout Southern California. And this is my team here. I work very closely with Dr. Eric Terrell. He's the technical director. He's based at CORDSI, which is a group here at Scripps that is really at the forefront of pushing a lot of technology for ocean observing. Um, my program coordinator is Megan Medina. She's my right-hand woman. Uh, and Ross Timmerman works across two different programs, that's SCUS and also the Coastal Data Information Program, CDIP. You may have heard of them. They're the ones that procure wave buoy data for the entire nation. If you're a surfer, you definitely know what CDIP is, and they're a very close ally and partner with SCUS. And Dr. Floribeth Laval is my postdoc. She works both with me here at SCUS and also with California Sea Grant, um, and she is an incredible asset doing some neat work with marine protected areas. And then Ian Brunes is going to be joining us this summer to do an NSF, that's a National Science Foundation, internship on data. And since we are very data intensive, as you will see, it makes a lot of sense. 
So I'm just going to give a little bit of a, of a high-level background on what uh, SCUS is and how we fit into uh, the national system. So at NOAA, you may have heard of NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. There are many, many agencies. You may have heard of the National Weather Service, first and foremost. There's also the National Ocean Service. And within the Ocean Service, there are a lot of different departments or kind of um, line offices, as we often refer to them. Fisheries is one of those. Another one is called IUS, so that's the Integrated Ocean Observing System, um, and it's part of that National Ocean Service branch. And within IUS, there um, are a lot of people who work on like the DC side of IUS, but then nationally we have all of these observing systems that are a part of that enterprise, and there are 11 of these regional associations as we call them, and SCUS is just one of those. So you see them here on the map these regional groups that procure observing data, um, models, all kinds of information for the people in that region. Uh, there are two in California because we're such a big state. So CENCUS is our sister group to the north. So that stands for Central and Northern California Ocean Observing System. And we are SCUS, so we're generally about Morro Bay down to the border with Mexico, but we also work with our partners and colleagues all the way into Ensenada um, and try to keep there a certain kind of continuity for the region. Um, and we're also, recently, we've all kind of fallen into this interesting um, certification, as it's being called at NOAA, where our data have been given the stamp of approval to say that we meet federal standards for high-quality, real-time data. And this has been really important for us to um, get our data into more and more places and make it more useful. So um, backing up in, in sort of where we are at SCUS and where we've come from, I'm going to be talking a lot about where we're going in the next five years, but I want to give you a sense of what that legacy looks like. Um, and because these regional associations of IUS were designed to meet societal needs and really have um, an emphasis on societal benefit, we've long focused on certain areas that are critical for um, coastal communities to thrive. And so those are things like marine operations, so that sometimes you could think of maritime transport or um, bringing ships in and out of port. That's a big one that we work within when we're thinking about marine operations. Um, we also procure data that help um, even your recreational sailor get around, uh, like radar data. I'll be talking about that in a minute. Uh, coastal hazards. So you think about oil spills, you think about pollution events. We also work to create models and predictions um, and ob observations that are critical to those needs. Uh, we work very closely with U.S. Coast Guard. I'll talk about that more as well. Uh, ecosystems, fisheries, and water quality. Um, I will stress that towards the end of the talk and how we are working to expand our ability to meet those needs. And we also have a fundamental and critical dedication to understanding climate variability and change through observing the systems and how it's changing through time. So we have uh, a vision and mission that is not unlike the other regions. We all maybe um, slice and dice those words a little differently, but SCUS and SENCUS have a, a pretty shared vision and mission to create a healthy and prosperous ocean. And we want that to be powered by the information that we're bringing to bear through observing and through modeling. So we produce, integrate, communicate this information. We hope that it's high quality. We try to make it as science-based as possible. And we do this in order to promote coastal ocean safety, resilience, and sustainability. 
I don't do this in a vacuum. I certainly don't do it alone. So it's really good to point out that while um, I am the executive director of this group and we're a fairly small group in-house here at Scripps, um, there are well over 20, somewhere between 20 to 30 principal investigators, as we often refer to them as, but those are the scientists doing the work. So there is a lot of work here that's involved to create an observing system at the scale of which you're going to hear more about as the, as the talk progresses. And so this requires that um, when we receive funding from NOAA to create this observing system and keep it going and maintain it, we then decide as a consortium how that money should be spent. Um, we bring those scientists into that decision-making process. Um, so part of the executive steering committee, the board of governors, these groups are also comprised of people who receive some of the funding. And that might sound like a, some sort of a conflict of interest, but what we are is really, we're not a funding agency. We are a group that receives funding and we try to do the best we can with it. And we like to have all of those who are the most informed about the system involved in the process. And then a lot of what we do is data management. So having um, a, a really important data management team and, an, and um, an analysis, these are critical to what we do here at SCUS. And if you go back in history um, for, for SCUS, not for IUS itself, but just for SCUS, a lot of the early days um, come from funding that was just from California that started to coalesce around scripts and a group of people who wanted to put uh, some critical observing in place. And so that money really did get us off the ground. And there were a lot of collaborations with the city of San Diego, city of Imperial Beach at the time to get observing in place to think about problems like the pollution um, surrounding Tijuana River. And so from there, we have really, really grown. And both Sucus and Sancus are represented on the map here. Um, those early days and that early investment from California was mostly things like what we call high-frequency radar. That's what the HF radar here refers to. And gliders. So those are autonomous vehicles that are out in the water sampling the surface to subsurface. So they go quite deep and they go very far offshore. And so a lot of that investment was there and we have built so much of what we do around that early investment. But as the years marched on, we realized how much more we could do and we kept building and building the program. And so you're seeing a nice pictorial representation here of the um, of these assets and the radar are shore based. So that's what those little stars are on the shore. But what they're doing is they're measuring the ocean surface currents offshore. The gliders are represented in those black lines. We also have shore stations that get you real-time data from temperature all the way up to things like chlorophyll, which are the phytoplankton and whether they're blooming or not. We have moorings up and down the coast, and we also support ship-based sampling like the uh, long-running cruises here out of Scripps called Cal Coffee. This is another picture. This is one we put together recently. Um, it's going to give you more of the three-dimensional picture, and this really just focuses on SCUS and what makes us a little bit different from some of the other regions. We all focus on things that are germane to what our users need, and there's commonalities there, but there's also differences. Um, for instance, in Southern California, one of those big differences is illustrated on the upper left here as the dynamic underkeel clearance project. So you see a huge ship there. These can be oil tankers, cargo ships, but the important piece of information here is that these are massive vessels that are coming into the port of LA and Long Beach 
Um, this is an incredibly important economic port for the U.S., where 30% or more of the goods coming into the U.S. are coming through that port. You probably noticed during COVID how important that was when things weren't arriving to you because we had these big traffic jams outside of the port as these ships were sitting. Um, and as these ships have gotten larger and larger, particularly oil tankers, um, they're having a harder time getting into the port. Um, these channels were not designed for ships with that kind of a keel. And so those margins that they're dealing with are quite small. And when the swell is such um, that they start to um, tilt, you can have one foot of that, of that create a 10 feet of draft. And so these are really critical thresholds. They need very, very detailed information. So SCUS works really closely with CDIP, who works closely with the Marine Exchange of Los Angeles and Long Beach as well as other um, private sector partners to provide those data to these ship captains when they're coming into port. And this is something that's clearly critical for our region. Um, you go to other regions where you don't have large ports like that, it, that might not be something that they focus on. Um, we also focus a lot on water quality because we have places like the entire county of Los Angeles in our region, and there is a lot of um, you know, human-based pollution that may or may not be bad for the environment, but it needs to be monitored and we need to be able to tease out some of the effects of that from natural things that are happening in the area. And so we try to work with groups like our partner SCORP in, in that area. They're based in Costa Mesa and they are really um, at the forefront of understanding what uh, the water quality signal is and how to help dischargers. And so we then align ourselves with some of those local dischargers to help them monitor their impact on the environment. But if you remember this picture as we march forward, you'll be able to think about all of the projects that I discuss. We, um, you, could you could take a little bit of a different angle and think about the parameters or the variables of interest. Those are pictured here. Uh, we have lingo in, in ocean observing that is essential ocean variables. This is something that the global community has come up with to try to standardize how we do this at a global level. And if you were to go to our website, you'd see that there are various ways to access the information that we provide, whether that's biological, biogeochemical, or physical. Um, this is a less exciting slide, but it does come from our recent vision for the next five years and how these core variables that are so important to IUS and so important to the global observing systems are coming together. And more and more we are coming together to think about not just those ocean variables, which are often physics and chemistry based, but what we want to think of as essential biodiversity variables. So how do you move from something like the bulk biomass of chlorophyll, which just tells you how much plankton is possibly in the water to what kind of plankton is in the water. That's biodiversity. And we're trying to push the envelope to get to these more critical things, move up the food web even, think about the marine mammals. Um, we want to observe them, but we want to also come up with some more, um, I would say, larger scale ways to observe animals and what they're doing through things like animal telemetry. Uh, we're trying to push the envelope in some of these areas, and I'll get into that in a minute. So this is the, a little bit of a, of a representation of that vision. Um, on the left, we have a wheel that is telling you how we engage across those focus areas with the kinds of stakeholder communities that we have in the area, whether that's scientists and educators. Of course, scientists are a stakeholder community. A lot of our data is, is, is produced 
so that people can, scientists can do better science. Um, and then we work with groups like marine mammal managers. We have environmental managers with dischargers, people in fisheries, fisheries managers, but also commercial fisheries and aquaculture, um, emergency responders like U.S. Coast Guard, and the list goes on. So um, on the right, you're seeing this um, a little bit more of a new vision that's coming into all of ocean observing around the world, which is now that we have lots of great physical measurements in place, how do we layer on the biology and the biodiversity so that we have a holistic vision of the ecosystem and an understanding of how ecosystems are changing? And those goals, as we were thinking about what the next five years would look like, we had to um, articulate what those high-level goals are. Um, and they cut across these various systems in place, ocean observing, data management, so DMAC just refers to how we deal with the data and deliver it in a timely manner, um, modeling and analysis, so sometimes those observations work their way into the predictions. Um, they help validate predictions, they help calibrate, parameterize predictions. Um, and then what are those tertiary products and tools that you can develop? You, now you have a lot of uh, data, you have models, but how do you synthesize, interpret, and, um, and deliver that information to people, to the public, to end users in a way that they can use it and make the most value out of it? Uh, and then we have our governance and our stakeholder engagement. So a lot of that product development requires constant engagement with everyone in the community to understand their needs and their requirements. And that relationship building is really um, at the center of what we do here at SCUS. So we try to keep these long-term, high-quality observing system going with all of these instruments in the water and, and people who are involved in keeping this going. But we then have to th think about, you know, why are we doing this? Um, we never lose sight of the downstream impacts of the data um, and those who are going to be able to use it to have stronger communities and more resilient communities. So this is another picture. We put this together as we were thinking about that next five-year vision, um, how to expand and maintain our radar network. Um, so the radar, again, is what gives us surface current measurements, and we are really invested in keeping that going is sort of the, the biggest part of, of SCUS right now. It's still about um, half of the money that we spend, more than half, goes to radar. Uh, and then the next item is the California Underwater Glider Network. And this is sort of run mostly in-house from SCUS and I mean, from, from Scripps in that um, Dan Rudnick's group here builds the instruments in-house, does everything for the, the entire life cycle of those data are really coming out of his lab and the instruments are built there. They go out, the data comes back um, and it comes back in, it's telemetered to um, networks in space. We get the data. There's some really interesting kind of uh, feedback here and how we get those data periodically and what we do with them. And I'm going to talk about those for monitoring climate variability and change in just a minute. And then um, harmful algal blooms. You heard about that in my introduction. Uh, that is a big part of what we do here at SCUS too. We've been growing the monitoring program for HABs, uh, and we have thought a lot about how to make that um, is complementary with the modeling that's happening in California as well. So I'll, t I'll touch on that later. And then automated shore stations. This is another one that you may have heard about because we have um, a very long-running shore station here at Scripps. Um, that is the manual shore station program. It's a slightly different um, program that is run from the state, but it's very uh, synergistic with the automated sensors that we have at the pier. 
So the sampling is done somewhat in tandem, but we have extended it up the coast all the way up to Cal Poly. Um, we support those shore stations um, up through Stearns Wharf. We share that site, Cal Poly, with Sencus, and then they have their own sites in Northern California. So I'll get back now to that radar. I keep throwing it out there as a little bit of a teaser. Um, these these radar, which are just these antenna, they're, they're, they're quite unassuming. If you look at the picture on the right, you'll see that radar. This is one that sits right outside my office here at Scripps. Um, but these are all along the coast, distributed in a way that, that helps us kind of triangulate patterns out onto the offshore where we can then use that signal to derive the um, surface vo current velocities and then move to other higher order products from there. Um, but you're seeing one of these kind of vector maps in the center of the slide, where you're looking at the velocity of the, of the currents, those vectors. And this is important for a lot of modeling, as you would imagine. Um, it, these data go into things like SARops, which is the search and rescue modeling environment that the US Coast Guard uses. And um, that picture on the bottom left is um, a picture of someone from CDIP and myself going out with the U.S. Coast Guard. We were in that instance, we were taking photographs of the coastline for erosion from helicopter. But um, one of the reasons we're able to go out and do this is because we have a close relationship with Coast Guard. Um, they're able to narrow in when they do search and rescue and get to people faster by having these data. These data are also really critical for oil spill response. So the models that both the federal government and the state government use to um, mitigate an oil spill, figure out where the oil is going, where will it have hit landfall. Those are, those, are, those are models that really require this kind of data. And sometimes we can do that forecasting just with the radar data alone. Other times it gets assimilated into a more complex circulation model. Um, and there's myriad ways these data are being applied for, eco applied for ecosystem work, looking at um, the way larvae move in and out of marine protected areas, um, how connected are those MPAs one to the next. These, these data tell you a lot about that. So sort of an endless applications. We have um, a lot of stakeholder groups in the area that we work with. Um, also, we work with Mexico because as you go even though we don't have a lot of radar going into the Ensenada area, the ones that we do have give us a great um, picture of what's happening with a lot of the aquaculture that's in that region. And then very importantly, I'm, and I'm gonna get back to this, the, these data create a plume tracker for the Tijuana River. And so when we wanna think about where the pollution is going, when there is a, a rain event, and if there's a lot of flow coming from the Tijuana River Valley, we're able to map that flow and look at how the plumes are extending up the coast. So I referred to the glider network earlier. Um, here is a kind of a, a noisy slide, a little bit like the last one, but I hope it doesn't get overwhelming. On the left, you see the map of the glider lines that we're supporting. Um, some of these come from other support and as well as Senku's support, but at least gives you a sense of how much time these gliders, or at least the spatial extent, of these gliders in California. How much time they're spent out there? Well, 
we there's generally one out there 24 7 so we're able to call this an operational program because there is always a glider in the water taking measurements uh, and what you're seeing on the far right is what the how those data kind of get translated um, there's a lot of glider days a lot of data to look through and they need to be uh, processed in a way that we can understand what we're looking at. We're measuring things like temperature on those gliders, we're measuring salinity, um, some biogeochemical properties like dissolved oxygen and pH, um, and even chlorophyll to look at the phytoplankton. If you just isolate temperature, like you see in the plots on the right, uh, you can start to think about what do those large scale patterns in temperature look like for an area like the Southern California Bight. Um, so those anomalies of temperature, when do they break away from the background average, are an important way for us to ascertain that. And those plots with all the squiggly lines on the top there are just the various glider lines, the colors of the different glider lines. The black line is what is happening at the equator. That's the oceanic Nino index. So that's telling you something about El Nino and its periodicity. Now, if you overlay those things as we've done here, you'll start to see how the temperature fluctuations in our neck of the woods are aligning or not aligning with what is happening at the equator. So these are data from about roughly 10 meters where the glider collected those temperature data. And you're seeing that for all of the glider lines in California and how um, very closely coupled they were with the El Nino signal until about 2014 when we had the Pacific Warm Anomaly, or is what most people know of as the blob, when we had incredibly high, anomalously high temperatures in the region. If you look at that, at that plot just below it, right when it starts to get extremely red um, in, the, in the diagram below that line plot, you'll see that that's about the same time. So this is the blob kicking on. And as you march up that plot from 2015 to 2021, you can see it's still quite red. Um, if you go back to the line plot and do the same thing, you start moving right, you can see that a lot of the temperature fluctuations in California, they've come together to match what's happening at the equator, and then sometimes they don't. So we don't know if we're in a different regime where we're no longer coupled with um, changes that are happening in the Pacific as a whole, and now we're almost in our own little regime of warming that seems quite disconnected from the El Nino signals at the equator. But that warming seems to persist. It's not as high as it initially was when it was two degrees centigrade above the background, but now we are in a place where it's still quite high. Um, and there are fluctuations there. But if you look at line 90, which is Dana Point on the right, you can see that that temperature anomaly is really even more tightly aligned with that El Nino um, fluctuation, except for the time period that we're in now. And so we call that the SoCal Temperature Index, and we've been producing that as a product with the Spray Glider program here um, at Scripps. So harmful algae, this is one that's near and dear to my heart. Um, you heard in the introduction that I spent a lot of time thinking about how to, how to observe and model harmful algae. Uh, SCUS has a long history doing this, well, not too long, but maybe since about 2008 when the academic community in California came together and said, we're doing all of this ad hoc sampling of harmful algae at various piers, why don't we come together and do something for our state stakeholders and policymakers and try to um, have standardized products, standardized sampling with longevity, keep the monitoring going. And so um, SCUS and SENCUS came together and tried to make that a funding reality and we've done really well at keeping this going. 
And it's been really important because it gives us this great baseline at the piers to see what kind of um, changes are happening in the plankton on a weekly basis. So there's weekly sampling for um, kind of in conjunction with the automated shore stations. So you're looking at chlorophyll temperature, salinity, also macronutrients like silicic acid, phosphate, and nitrate. These are really important for phytoplankton to grow. We look at around eight to nine taxa, so that's different species or genera uh, of interest, the ones we think are potentially damaging to the environment if they grow out of control. We also monitor for toxins, um, and there is one of these organisms, so Pseudonychia, the one you see right in the middle, it's got kind of a spindly pencil-like chain. Um, that one produces a pretty deadly neurotoxin that you may have heard of called domoic acid. And this becomes really visible on our beaches seasonally when marine mammals like sea lions strand on the beach. You've no doubt seen that um, if you've lived in California for very long and you've seen animals who are bobbing and weaving on the beach, um, sometimes even se seeming very friendly because of that neurotoxic effect. Well, that is a toxin that also really affects our shellfish supply and, and, and public health because we wouldn't want to eat it in large amounts in the shellfish because we would get something called amnesic shellfish poisoning, and that can lead to memory loss. It can even lead to death. So we're looking at that at each of the piers, and we're also monitoring other toxins with something called SPAT. It's a new te newer technology, or I should say a newer application of an old technology where you put out some resin beads that collect the toxins in the environment, and it's sort of a passive tracer. And then we um, look, at, look at all of the toxins that are collected on those beads so we can see check for emerging toxins. And so we've been putting these into weekly alerts on a listserv, but then we also put those data, once they're quality controlled, onto various databases and, um, and then merge them with models. So I'll talk about that in a minute. And I just, you know, if this were a longer talk just about the harmful algae, I'd go into little anecdotes about all of the critters you see here, but we're going to um, bypass that for right now. Um, I'll focus the conversation uh, again on Pseudonychia, but I wanted to say that the previous slide was really about the traditional ways one uses a microscope to look at sampling. And one of the reasons we only do it weekly is that it is very labor intensive to get a water sample, put it under a microscope, and then count all of those microscopic plankton. So um, things have kind of been revolutionized in this area uh, recently by, or maybe the last 10 to 15 years, by the invention or advent of something called the imaging flow cytobot. And this was created by a woman who did her graduate work here at Scripps um, and has been a researcher scientist at HUI, at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, for a long time. And these instruments are really critical to getting us a, a higher frequency um, and more, um, I would say, comprehensive view of the plankton and the communities of plankton in the water. And the way they do that, you're seeing some of them here being built for our network on the right, um, these are about a meter, meter or so high. They're um, so fairly large, but you can put them on piers, you can put them in the water, you can put them on moorings. Um, and what they're meant to do is be underwater microscopes such that the water's flowing through, they're robotic microscopes, they can take real-time images uh, and then send those images in real time, meaning you know every 20 minutes a sample is taken, so every 20 minutes we can get a rough estimate of what that 
population looks like. So we're getting images, beautiful high resolution images, just like you would take on a microscope under a microscope. But then we're applying machine learning algorithms to those images that say, you know, kind of been trained in an image recognition sort of way to tell us what plankton are there. And recently, uh, working with Sankus, we have obtained money from the state of California to grow a pretty large network of these at all of the piers where we do the weekly sampling and then also on moorings to understand offshore initiation of harmful algal blooms since a lot of these things do happen offshore. And so that network will be 10 or 11 imaging flow cytobots big. We are working with umpteen partners, um, many, many scientists, the private sector, we have dischargers involved. They're even buying their own imaging flow cytobots to create, um, to become part of this network. And then we'll be working on cruises like Cal Coffee and other water quality cruises that the dischargers do and that Squirp does to say, what is happening offshore? We don't wanna just know the nearshore picture. And the reason for that is they're often very, very, very decoupled. You can have a bloom offshore and not one at the piers and vice versa. So I kind of alluded to the modeling and you heard in the introduction that um, I was involved in something called the California Harmful Algae Risk Mapping System. So we call that CHARM. And this is a model a lot like akin to a weather model, gives you a spatially explicit daily to every three days forecast of what's happening in the water for toxins, just for domoic acids. So it's not telling you what's every potentially harmful algae that's in the water or every toxin, but it homes in on just the probability of there being a domoic acid event. And that model goes out now. We, um, we sort of moved it into the operational NOAA space a long time ago with a group called uh, Coast Watch. So it goes out as a daily routine product from NOAA and it looks like these maps you're seeing on the left. Um, and so what you're seeing is a probability of having a large Sudnitia event. In the middle, you're seeing the probability of having a large domoic acid event. And on the far right, the probability of having a, a domoic acid event that's really um, even more, maybe, maybe where the cells are at a different phase. We call that the cellular domoic acid. So that's where um, maybe the earlier stages of a bloom when individual cells are more toxic. So we're looking at these three things and we're tracking them every day. And our stakeholders, they, they like it. They like that they can see what's potentially happening offshore and at these really large scales for California. But it can be very, very hard to understand how to interpret it, particularly if you're looking at, say, um, those orange colors or the green or orange colors, which is maybe 50 to 60% probability of there being a bloom or toxins. How do you really calibrate that for yourself and what does that mean for the resource you're protecting? Um, I know that like some of us might take an umbrella out when there's 10% chance of rain and others might only do it when there's 90% chance of rain. And we're trying to um, get, calibrate this for our stakeholders, maybe not in a numerical way, but in a way where they can say, well, what did the peers tell us today? Um, and what did the California Department of Public Health say was happening when they did their sampling in various sites in California? And then were there marine mammals stranding from domoic acid poisoning? And if so, were they stranding in areas where the model said there should have been high domoic acid? So we're bringing all of this together on a monthly basis. We call this the California Hab Bulletin. You're seeing a pictures of many of the stakeholders that provide us data on a monthly basis. We get data from every marine mammal stranding group in California, including SeaWorld. And these groups 
are working very closely. They're dedicated to this because they realize how much this helps them think through the multifaceted problem of observations in one place say this, a model says this. There's sometimes there's a mismatch. doesn't mean that one is wrong. It just means you sometimes have uh, mismatches of things in space and time, and that's just the nature of it. But um, this is a retrospective product. It comes out every month and tells them what that last month looked like so that maybe when they see the model in the following month, um, they'll have a better sense of what to trust and what not to trust. And another big program that I have mentioned several times now is the Automated Shore Station program. And it kind of goes hand in hand with that Harmful Algal Bloom program because it, they all happen at the same piers in California. These data are all critical for one another. You can't really interpret the harmful algae data without the physical data. You need um, those great records of temperature, chlorophyll, salinity. And so we keep these sensors going with our incredible um, partners and PIs like Melissa Carter, who you're seeing here. Um, and she dives a lot off um, all of the piers that we service, but particularly Scripps Pierce, since we're all based here. And we have sensors that are there. They're working real time, but they have to get cleaned. They have to get serviced. Um, Biofouling is a really big problem we deal with. So you can see like a high frequency signal like in the plot, that temperature signal can get really um, problematic and have crazy spikes and spurious um, issues when the sensor itself is just covered in algae or mussels or barnacles. And so this is a constant thing we have to do. We try to keep that communication open with the public that we do go back in time and try to quality control those data. But if you're just looking at something like a chlorophyll signal in real time as it's coming in, you do have to be aware of the fact that um, sometimes if it just goes off the charts into some strange number that just doesn't seem possible, that might be an indication of biofouling or something like that. But we work to um, quality control those. We have flags we apply in real time to try to get those data as good as we can. We also are looking at ocean acidification, and this might be something you don't know a lot about, but it's intimately connected to global warming and the changes in greenhouse gas emissions globally and how what happens when you have a lot of carbon dioxide in the environment and it starts to um, make it makes its way into the ocean. You have air-sea exchange. Um, we've exceeded the buffering capacity of that CO2 now in the ocean. We have major shifts in how much calcium carbonate versus CO2 versus bicarbonate ions we have in the ocean. And this is a, a direct function of the fact that we have um, a more acidic ocean now. As CO2 increases in the atmosphere and increases the ocean, more partial pressure of carbon dioxide means um, a more acidic ocean. And so we're looking at things like um, the ramifications of that, and we measure pH, but we also look at oxygen, because oxygen is intimately correlated with um, some of these processes, but also biological processes, where sometimes you could have a bloom that takes down oxygen as a result from the bacterial degradation after a bloom. So all of these things are, are important for fish, for the biota, for all of the animals to figure out how they're going to adapt to not only a more acidic ocean, but an ocean where oxygen supply is also fluctuating quite a lot. So we work with um, engineers here at Scripps, and the Todd, Todd Martz is the um, key collaborator there in, the, in Martz lab, and he's been creating for quite some time now a self-calibrating CFOX. So the CFOX measures pH and oxygen, as you can see in the name. But um, more recently, that CFOX has been um, 
kind of beefed up to have some really interesting capabilities to keep itself calibrated in situ, so while it's in the water. And um, we're trying to bring this technology onto the piers. So we do play a role quite often of um, being a technology accelerator, or at least a test bed for new technologies. And so um, we know that this has a pretty high readiness level. It's ready to go out on the piers and do the work of doing pH and oxygen measurements routinely. So we're excited that in the next five years we're going to get these out. We're going to be able to have data like this at the piers and really um, see those fluctuations in real time. We're also working with the climate group at Scripps. So that's the Center for Climate Change Impacts and Adaptation. And um, with them and with our CDIT partners, the Wave Buoy program, we're able to put out the data for wave, what I should say is really the run-up. People call it, sometimes people call it flooding, sometimes they call it inundation, sometimes it's just as simple to call it run-up because that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about the wave run-up into the nearshore zone and what that means for your average beachgoer or um, somebody who has to um, manage the, the parking lot at the beach or the lifeguards or maybe the city managers who have other concerns related to erosion and highway uh, flooding and the like. So we're trying to do this at various beaches, but in this partnership with CDIP and with the CCCIA, we're able to have at least some data pages where we get these data out to the public in real time. Um, for various sites, and we've been trying to expand the um, validation of that work up for various beaches. We can put these data out based on the modeling that CDIP does for every beach, but getting the um, parameterizations and the validation correct for those beaches has been a little bit more challenging. It requires this extra funding that SCOOS is trying to provide so that we can just kind of every year take on a new beach like Cardiff, and then Huntington Beach and just move up the coast and try to really um, get these models more accurate so that people do know when there's a run-up event, if it's coming, if there's a king tide and a, and, a, and, a, and a high tide and a lot of stuff that's coming together, you're gonna know if you're going to have a flooding event that could um, really impact your life or your property. And so here's more of the what we're calling the California Coastal Flood Network. Um, I mentioned that we're moving up to different beaches. We hope to get to Malibu, Del Mar, and others. Um, those are in preparation. We want to improve the accuracy and the accessibility of that. Uh, at NOAA, we're calling this total water level because it's a combination of thinking about sea level rise, the run-up, the tides, as well as what's, what's the runoff. When you have something like this near an estuary or a river, you're going to have a runoff event. And you need to think about what does that total water level look like. And we have records of coastal flooding events that I think you would find interesting if you go to the website. Some of this work is quite labor intensive because in order to do that validation and the parameterization I was referring to, you've got to collect a lot of data, things like having pressure sensors offshore, seated wave buoys, LIDAR drones, trying to get all of the more beach morphology is really critical to this and the topography. You've got to have buried pressure sensors on the beach and then these static LIDAR and, LIDAR and video cameras. So I don't want to minimize this. This is actually a really intensive process, and that's kind of why we can only tackle one beach at a time. But um, as you can imagine, this stuff's really important for coastal resilience. The state of California 
is very interested in this and what it tells us about sea level rise. What does it tell us about um, how quickly a given coastal zone is going to get eroded or have flooding problems as we move forward in time and as climate change continues to be a problem and worsen. We're working with our partners in fisheries like Cal Coffee to bring together data, synthesize everything that they're looking at with everything we're looking at as well as the state and try to say, you know, if you've got fisheries managers um, on the federal side and the state side who need all of the best available information, do they have the integrated regional data and products that they need? Do they have the interpretations they need and the synthesis that they need? So we're working with some great data scientists to make that a reality. We also have partners that come out of the, the Farallon, Farallon Islands Institute, so that's Northern California, but they are working with us to um, get the observations of seabirds and mammals on Cal Coffee cruises. So we have um, a number of partners at Farallon Institute who they themselves or they have other partners who help them collect those data, but they go out on those quarterly cruises, collect those data, put them in reports, and we are now working to get those digitized so that they will be maximally useful uh, when we think about integrated assessments for fisheries. Um, we're going to start to bring in new products like kelp canopy area and biomass dynamics. This comes from some, some pretty neat research that came out of UC Santa Barbara to take remote sensing imagery um, of kelp and then from that derive the, the biomass, how well is it growing, how productive is it, all kinds of interesting physiological traits that you can get from those snapshots. And so now instead of having to take airplanes out and make these expensive aerial snapshots as the state used to do a long time ago, we now have um, daily imagery from, or sometimes daily, but at least weekly imagery from things like Landsat, also from sensors like MODIS. Um, so this is pretty exciting and we're going to be working with the people who have created these products to make them readily available to the public, to the state, and also synthesize them with fisheries data. Um, and part of the, the team at Farallon Institute um, is has been creating a, an index. They're calling this the multivariate ocean climate indicator. This brings together a lot of information um, to capture variability in the system, variability that's associated with El Nino, variability that is associated with things like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, um, but it also includes data from buoys. It tells you when there's upwelling, high upwelling, low upwelling. And so when you merge all of that, you get a pretty cool product that aligns well with, with some of the population dynamics um, in the food web, what birds are doing, what certain marine mammals are doing. And we want to make this a critical feature of our synthesis work um, when we create products for our stakeholders. And then on the modeling side, we've been working with modelers at UCLA to create the regional ocean modeling system. Um, we have a real-time product, and then we have this one, which is more of a research product. Uh, this kind of pushes the boundaries of what we can do with predicting circulation using these hydrodynamic principles. And um, we're continuing to provide that support so that the nearshore ROMs development can be improved for physics and, um, and also improved for the direct relevance with water quality managers because this model is more and more being used by the state when it's coupled with an ecosystem model to tell managers whether ocean acidification and other nutrient discharge is a problem for uh, the local environment and whether they need to ratchet 
back how the um, what kinds of nutrients are in the wastewater discharge in order to prevent things like harmful algal blooms or ocean acidification issues or hypoxic events. So we've been supporting a real-time version of that kind of a model for a long time. It puts out um, a three-day forecast. It's critical for creating the harmful algal bloom forecast I told you earlier because we use that output to force that model. Um, and this one has been the workhorse for driving a lot of products that we produce for our stakeholders. Um, we will probably be transitioning it soon, though, into um, a, there's a, NOAA is creating another version of this that's going to be coming out as a standard operational product from NOAA. It'll be a two-kilometer version. It's called the West Coast Ocean Forecast System. And so we'll be moving into using that more regularly, but um, I just want to stress that this kind of, uh, of approach to use a, a real-time operational model like this um, won't go away at SCUS. We need to keep doing that because it feeds into so many other products. We have dischargers who need these data. They want to look at what's happening three-dimensionally in the water column, um, and the predictions have a very high fidelity to reality. So these have been great for just like a weather model telling us what what is happening in the ocean, what are the changes that you can expect in real time that affect um, Fisheries. Where do the fish go? Sometimes when you want to find a squid, it's just as simple as knowing what the temperature is at 30 meters. And so those are the kinds of things we can extract from this. And so I will end there by showing you that map that I showed you earlier. Again, now that you've heard everything that I've gone through, this is not everything we do but you can start to think about what the um, ocean acidification means for the environment. What do, what, why, are we, why are we sampling plankton? Um, what is this California underwater glider network all about? And, and we're trying to create a holistic vision of the ecosystem with all of these data. It can seem a little bit scattershot at times and we're trying to bring the pieces together and really synthesize them so that, um, that the societal value is as, is as um, maximal as we can make it. And I hope that you enjoyed that. I'm really looking forward to hearing questions. Thank you. That was a very enjoyable talk. Thank you. We had a couple of questions about uh, harmful algal blooms. Uh, one attendee said that the now cast and forecast maps um, for um, HABs were very helpful for marine mammal stranding and awareness. Um, and they wondered if there was a new website that has those maps. Yeah, so we deliver them via the SCUS website. Um, it might be that you maybe tried to find them at a time when there was a transition. They, uh, When we first started doing this, and I was at UC Santa Cruz, we put it out on the SENCUS site. Uh, the SCUS site still links to it because now it's served via, it became like an operational product at NOAA. It was NOAA Coast Watch. So that goes out on a database called ERDAP, and we link to that, and we also put those maps um, in that retrospective way in the California Hab Bulletin. But if you want them on a daily basis, they are on our website. If you just go to products, you'll see, um, you'll see the CHARM link and you just click on that and you should be able to uh, do some exploration. We're also in the, in the throngs of transitioning to a new data management service and we'll have a pretty fancy portal to um, unveil to the world in about six months time. And you'll be able to do some really nice visualization queries with that. Oh, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, someone was asking about the uh, data on harmful algal blooms and how often uh, those data are collected. And you may have covered that in part, but maybe you can um, expand on that a bit. 
So specifically for the HAB data, mm-hmm. um, the traditional way that we do it with the microscopy at the peers is a weekly sampling, particularly because it is so intensive um, and time consuming. But now that we have these imaging flow cytobots that we're putting at the pier, we will have a sample every 20 minutes. It's unclear uh, you know, how that's going to serve managers. We'll probably roll that up into some higher level products as well. But right now we're putting up a dashboard. It will be become public where you can see those images as they come in in real time. So probably on the hour, you'll get the update. And that will be another way to see what's potentially out there in terms of HABs. But um, we have a, a like a private listserv. It's more of like a back room for the managers where we do that weekly. The public doesn't really get to see the HAB data until they get uploaded at their QCed and then they get uploaded into our database and then we put them back out to the public. So there are kind of layers here and it just depends on your needs, but we make sure the management community gets those alerts immediately. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work goes into getting those out. Um, I had an, uh, another question here that I thought was quite interesting. They were asking about ocean acidification um, and they asked um, whether or not the pH varied from area to area uh, or if there were any trends in pH, uh, perhaps a place that showed uh, someplace that the ocean was actually not acidifying but becoming more basic. So I don't think the trends have shown um, a, a change towards things being more basic. The thing to remember about pH and also about oxygen in our environment is highly, highly variable. So what you will see are day-to-day fluctuations, seasonal fluctuations, some that kind of push outside of the envelope of what organisms can really tolerate or what they've been evolved to tolerate in our region. Um, you'll see things on the very low end that you might construe as basic. Um, and it just fluctuates. But I think the thing that we're worried about in terms of climate change is that as those fluctuations continue, what does the variance do? What does the variability do? And how do we, and what do the extremes look like? So as the extremes worsen in one direction or another, and we're really more concerned about the acidic direction, uh, do we then push the boundary of what uh, the ecosystem can handle? And that's what we're seeing more and more of at many sites up and down the coast. And you see a lot of that variability during upwelling when you tend to bring up old water that's actually really high in carbon and CO2, so it's actually pretty acidic. It's also usually low in oxygen. And these are the things that can push those events. And it's kind of a more of an event-driven issue um, is what we're finding in California. You really see that in Northern California. We see it less so here, but um, it's expected that that trend will continue as as we move forward if we don't curb greenhouse gas emissions. Thank you. Yeah, this is uh, perhaps a somewhat related question. Uh, This is from a student at UC Riverside who's interested in animal conservation. Uh, And they were um, saying that you had covered how your data uh, helps with some of that uh, research on marine animals, but they were wondering if you could elaborate on that uh, just a little bit more. What are the connections between the physical measurements you make or the HAB measurements and um, marine conservation? Yes. Uh, so as far as the marine mammals go, we're not, um, we're probably not directly influencing conservation in the sense that we're not making products yet that affect conservation. We're creating these forecasts. We're, we're collecting data. We're trying to put the pieces together. That can certainly help people who are doing work towards conservation to understand the pressures on a given population. So we're trying to contribute towards that. We're also working on a marine protected area project where we are pulling together models like Sea Harm. And then there are some other interesting models. One is called EcoCast and it tells you 
what is the likelihood of, of catching bycatch, which we clearly don't want to have, um, relative to the likelihood of catching a target species if you're a commercial fisherman, and then also looking at the likelihood of protected species being caught. So it kind of weights all of these things and gives you a sense of what that looks like in space and time, just the way CHARM does. And we're looking at the cross-section of all of these to understand what the pressures are in a given MPA and uh, put that modeling together in kind of a, like a management tool where they can query per, mm -hmm. at a pixel level what's happening in their MPA and also looking at some other interesting models that I won't go into right now for sake of time. But that's meant to um, help them understand some of this stuff. One of the layers that's in that ecocast model is a sea lion layer and they can start to pull that out and see what's, what the pressures are on sea lions. But we know that um, even though these demoic acid events, for instance, are just, they're, they're, they're events and sometimes they're acute. Other times there's just this chronic level of demoic acid that's out there and these animals are often chronically stranding. There are pressures on these populations over time that we're only, I think, just beginning to get a handle on. What does it mean? Um, sea otters, for instance, we're starting to understand are getting hit by a whole number of toxins, not just demoic acid. And they're getting toxins from land, land-based harmful algal blooms. And this is all coming together to, um, you know, it's, it's like a trifecta in a way that's then leading to higher order problems in those populations because they can no longer then ward off parasites or ward off other disease because they have these chronic uh, attacks by things like toxins in the environment. So that's really interesting. So SCUS is, is quite active in helping with the marine protected area monitoring. Is that correct? That's right. And so we are working really closely with Sencus on an MPA monitoring project. And we're doing the part that I just outlined with the models, um, talking to the stakeholders on a regular basis. These are a number of partners um, throughout fisheries and other groups that are monitoring how, or, or really trying to evaluate how the MPAs have been set up and how to move forward, whether they want to change those or not. And they want to really evaluate the oceanographic context that surrounds the data that we do have. So we're trying to pull together everything that Senkus and Skus have in a way that they can curate those data views, understand the change in their system, and what does that change mean for protecting the various species that they've been mandated to protect. That was really terrific, Clarissa. We're so glad that you were able to join us and provide us with this overview of an organization based at Scripps that really is doing um, some of the, the work at the forefront of connecting science to society. Um, thank you so much for what you do and thank you for a great talk. Thank you, you're welcome. It's great to be here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.